0: JP, thank you for joining us on the on the Speedio podcast. Uh, we, we like to dive right in and, and kind of get your background. Obviously, you have an illustrious career in soccer and, and some other sports in the US, uh, the NHL and, and things like that. Uh, but maybe you could just walk us through a brief background of, of how you ended up where, where you are today.
1: Wow. Uh, long story short, cut to the cliff notes, I guess. Um, grew up in Boston, wanted to be a hockey announcer, NHL announcer, and spent probably 10 plus years of my life, uh, traveling the minor leagues, minor league bus rides, eight hour trips, 10 hour trips, 12 hour trips, uh, never seemed to get my break. And an indoor soccer opportunity came up. I grabbed that and that led to working with outdoor soccer and that led to 17 World Cups. That's That's the short version of it. And I ended up getting my NHL gig Many years later, when I wasn't even looking for it, so I've been very fortunate to have a lot of things go my way in my career. Uh,
0: amazing obviously we we work with a number of sports we we do have a number of soccer clients too, and especially across the United States and the university and the MLS levels. Uh, how has soccer changed in the in the, over your career? Obviously, you started with the indoor league, but now. 17 World Cups, uh, working for the Philadelphia Union, a number of different soccer. How how has the culture and and soccer evolved in the United States over your career?
1: Well, everything has changed. And first of all, for for people that say we are not a soccer nation, you are totally incorrect. Uh, That's a falsehood that's been spread for years, actually. But we are a soccer nation. Um, More people buy tickets to the World Cup from the United States, wherever the World Cup is, than any other any other country. And our attendance is good. Uh, MLS has been very successful. We have other leagues like USL. We have indoor soccer now that I'm affiliated with, the major arena soccer league. There's an NWSL. We are a a soccer nation for sure. And it all changed, I would say, back in 1990 when we qualified for the World Cup for the first time since 1950. Uh, You know, you fast forward from that and all the corporate sponsorship, starting of new leagues uh, to the point now where you fast forward even farther and Lionel Messi is here. So there's a lot of great things that have happened that changed a lot of things. When, when I was growing up and when I first started out as a broadcaster, uh, indoor soccer was all we had and the major indoor soccer league was the only televised soccer in the United States. There was no uh, professional outdoor league. I'm I'm going back after the NASL had had their issues and had folded, and previous leagues had folded. So we have come a long way to a point where now you can watch any game you want, pretty much from any league that you want, male or female, uh, anywhere on your on your television, on your iPad or on your smartphone, and you can't say that about. Many other countries in the world, so I think we've come a long way, and we still have a ways to go and to grow. And the 2026 World Cup will be an even bigger milestone for us as a soccer nation.
0: Definitely, I have so many questions, but Delhi, I'll I'll let you uh, let you jump in.
2: No, it's it's funny you mentioned the 26 World Cup because uh, I I've never actually had the privilege of uh, even attending a World Cup game because. I always played throughout the the summer in the USL, so I'm, I'm excited to actually be be at my first ever World Cup game. Are you? Do you have plans for that? Are you going to be involved with the 26 World Cup? It's uh, I don't know actually because
1: it's uh, it's too far away to know what's what's happening or to make any kind of predictions. Um, I'd probably like to, but. Again, it's like three years from now, and I, I'm thinking like year to year, but this will be the, the biggest event in the history of the World Cup. I mean, 1994, we set records for attendance, for sponsorship, for viewership, and we'll blow all of those out of the water in 2026. This will be massive for the US, Mexico, and Canada. where We could have done it on our own, but I, I think the days, guys, of a... Of a World Cup being hosted by one country are over on the men's side and and probably on the women's side too.
0: Well, what was that experience like in uh, Qatar, um, where it was so condensed? Yeah. And obviously, in the U.S., it's going to be in Mexico and Canada. It's spread out over yeah many many miles.
1: Yeah, we got spoiled spoiled in Qatar because you know you would go to the game. You'd come back to your hotel. It would be at a decent hour unless you had the late game and you could do some prep work for your game if you had one the next day or the day after. Um, Sleeping habits were great. You didn't go to, I went to the airport when I landed and when I went home and that was it. Whereas in Australia, New Zealand, you know, we were flying back and forth country to country, sometimes on day of game because we had to. So Qatar was not, was not the easiest World Cup because I don't think any World Cup is easy, but I always say it was the less challenging World Cup from a broadcaster standpoint in terms of you know getting your research done, getting the proper rest, being totally prepared for your games, and being ready for the next one and that will never happen again because you know now there's more teams in the World Cup, and Qatar was just unique in the way that they were able to do that.
2: JP, do you have a, out of the 17, which is amazing, by the way, do you have a favorite? Does one stand out? Is there like a specific World Cup or a moment? Uh, I would say 1999,
1: Women's World Cup, because of what it did for um, women's soccer, women's sports and soccer in this country. If you remember, in 1998, our men's team finished dead last at the World Cup, so we needed something, we needed a break, we needed a boost, and, and that provided it. Those women captured the nation and, and set the wheels in motion for what we now see is, you know, all the games are televised when there's a Women's World Cup. So I think that's the one that I remember the most. On, on the men's side, I've, I've done so many, but some of them have not been on site. Um, I'm gonna go back to the first one that I did on site because it was unique. It was in Italy. It was for Turner. And instead of staying at a hotel, we had, I want to say, four or five. I think it was four play-by-play guys and, and analysts. And we all stayed at a at a wealthy person's villa. It was uh it was not like a mansion like that you would think in terms of a mansion. It was an older place, but it must have had seven or eight. Various rooms, everybody had their own shower bathroom. We had a cook there. We had a soccer field there we had a swimming pool there. It was the first time I had ever dealt with any kind of an experience like that that was not in a hotel doing a world cup so for the uniqueness of it all i would I would think about that one and also the last one that I did uh, the one. Yeah, the last one that I did in Qatar, also because it was unique. Those are, you know, my first one on site and my last one on site, I would say, because of the uniqueness of it. I have a, I have a, obviously,
0: at Speedio, we do a lot of performance analysis with video, but we also have a broadcasting service more for, obviously, the mid and, and lower tiers. Um and we're trying to use AI and automation and cloud technology to to make broadcasting more accessible um, and making sure all games are broadcasted, not just the the Premier League, but uh, the lower levels and, and everything like that too. How has you, you've seen so much, but how has the technology changed for broadcasters specifically um, as you've evolved through the years? I'm sure I'm sure it's come a long ways since quite a the, bit, yeah. yeah
1: we well let's put it this way we've gone from the days of ESPN International where we were getting feeds that were not HD they were SD and they were not good quality feeds you know we've gone from the days of actually starting a game without a lineup you know without a a game day lineup uh we've gone from um from that to now where you could actually call a game on Zoom which is remarkable to say the least. We've come to a point where the play-by-play guy can be in one studio on the East Coast, the analyst can be on the West Coast in another studio, and no one knows if you're doing it correctly. So it's come a long way, whether it's in person or off the monitor, uh, and with the Zoom technology now, and, and who knows? I mean, we have. I've never done this, and I don't want to do this, but I do know several people that have called games from the comfort of their own home. It's not something I want to do. I think too many things can go wrong. And I, and I probably won't feel like I'm uh, at the game if I'm, you know, in my living room or in my office, but it might be, might be the future. Maybe, maybe TV studios go away. Who knows? Right.
0: Yeah.
2: JP, um, you mentioned aspiring to get into the NHL, and uh, ended up going down this soccer avenue what what was so difficult about breaking in at that time like what was what what was it that
1: you know well i'm not up i'm not up in my nhl right now but i think it's 32 teams maybe but back then there were probably i want to say maybe 16 at the most. And some of those were in Canada. And And as an American, you'd never be hired by a Canadian company. They kind of protect their own. And And everybody that grows up in Canada wants to be a hockey announcer. So they had plenty of those there. So I think it was just like the opportunity. There wasn't that much there. And if you know anything about NHL broadcasting, if you if you did a deep dive into it, you'll see that a lot of their broadcasters have been with their respective teams for decades, decades and decades, like 30 years, 40 years, same broadcaster. So those jobs didn't open. So you had one or two that would open each year. And I came close, you know, there were, I can remember several times where I was told like, be patient, you know, this is gonna be yours. And it and it didn't happen, but it was more, uh, more of a closed market back then and now, even if it is 32 teams, you look, there's not a lot of change. These guys stick around, they become very popular, and it's something that you know you want to do as long as you can. So there's not many openings year to year in the NHL, and it's probably the same with the NBA and MLB and NFL, if I had to guess.
0: Do you have any advice for, uh, obviously it's hyper-competitive, but do you have any advice for ambitious people who want to get into broadcasting and like i said hopefully speedio and what we're doing with technology can open up more opportunities for play-by-play commentators and and not just the highest of the high levels but but all the way down but do you have any advice for in 2023 how to how how to keep the faith to to break into the industry
1: i think keep the faith is is the right way to to phrase it because i think that there are opportunities that are there there are way more opportunities today than there were, um, forget about 20 years ago. How about five years ago? You know, there's, there's so many more opportunities. But the other thing is, there's so many more people that are trying to do this as well. So it's like a good news, bad news. You know, yes, to the young, aspiring broadcasters, plenty of opportunity, but there's also plenty of competition. So that's why I say, as you said, keep the faith, you know, have patience. Um, the job that you want, you know, you may not be able to get right now, but um, I go back to, and you do need luck. I go back to my NHL situation where I, I tried for 10 years to get an NHL job and I didn't get it. And then one day I get a phone call that asked me if I wanted to fill in for somebody. I filled in for five games and I want to say two years later, that job opened up and I got a phone call and I was not looking for it. And ended up getting it. And I spent five years with the Atlanta Thrashers, which were five of the best years of my professional career because I was able to do hockey and soccer both. So I had the best of both worlds. That was like my dream job was always to be an NHL announcer. And then when that faded away and I got more involved with soccer, I was content just doing the soccer. And then NHL fell into my lap. And then I had the best of both
2: worlds. It is is – um calling hockey more difficult because of the speed? Or how, how is it no, different? I think, I think if you, people always
1: say that hockey's difficult, but I think if you grow up with hockey, it's not. I'm just following the puck. And I followed the puck when I was a little kid and I can follow it now, I would say. So I think the people that say hockey's too fast uh, probably didn't grow up with hockey. That's what I would say. But I, I think that um, all sports are difficult, to cover, you know, in their own way, baseball. You have a lot of fill time. Um, you have um, now they've changed the rules with the pitch count and all that. But before that, you know, be prepared for a lot of fill time with the NFL. You know, you you start and you stop right um, whistle timeout, You have plenty of time to talk. Soccer constant, hockey constant. You know, even the NBA. You know, you can have timeouts and and stop the game. So. I think each sport has its own challenges and uniqueness of the sport but I have never thought that that hockey was difficult to call. What's the
0: what's the most I, I don't want to use the word hostile but what's the craziest environment you've been in as a broadcaster because you mentioned you're always in person the yeah. re- remote typically hasn't been been um, available.
1: I I would say not so much hostile. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure there's some that are not coming to mind right away. But, but I mean, I've been to games in Azteca where I wouldn't call it hostile, like where I felt like I was threatened or anything, but intimidating. You know, as Az- Azteca, very intimidating. I've done games in Panama where um, up in the press box, there are soldiers with Uzis and it makes you feel like a little bit uneasy. Like you know, what if people? You only think about this for a split second, and then that's it. But like, what if what if fans started to go to the press box and want to make a statement? Right? What are the, what are the Uzis going to do? Like, they're not going to shoot their own people, right? But but seeing Uzis, I think, is intimidating. And the first time I saw that was in Trinidad and Tobago for that qualifier. Uh, that was intimidating, again, not for a fear of safety, but to be in a stadium that was packed probably four hours before the game with people singing and dancing and everyone in Trinidad red, except for two rows of USA fans, you know, you, you felt like, wow, it was, it was you or the US against the world. And I've, I've also done games in El Salvador, like anyone that thinks CONCACAF is, is easy, sit in the stands in El Salvador, you know, sit in the stands at some of these other places and, and you won't say that it's easy. It's, it is intimidating.
0: Yeah, definitely. Deli. Uh,
2: JP, what uh, you've got like a a highlight reel of probably uh, great goals and moments, you know, throughout your career, but what are some of the less glamorous things that you have to do behind the scenes to, to be able to show up for those like big moments? Like, I think any, any, anything that people do on an elite level, there's always those things that, you know, you do behind closed doors and could, could you maybe describe some of those things so, so people uh-huh. have an understanding?
1: I, I think the only difficult uh, part at times is um, if you have to go to a game extra early, like normally I would say right now, depending on the event, two to three hours before a game is appropriate. But I was told for that Trinidad game that if I didn't show up five hours before the game, that I may not get in, even with a credential, right? Because there were fake credentials, there were fake tickets, and they said that once they hit capacity, no one else was coming in. Um, And I was energized by that crowd. like That crowd kept me going. But normally, you don't want to be there too early. Um, As they say in television, uh, hurry up and wait. You know, because there's so many things that you have to do and and rehearsals and all that. But I can't think of anything, guys, that's been, you know, a difficult part. I I can't say studying for a World Cup is difficult because, you know, it's what you do, right? It's like studying for a test. You don't just show up in, in college and take a test. You have to prep for it. And so for me, the homework is everything that I do that leads into the game, the test is at the game. And if, you're, if you get 30%, I would say, of what you've studied on air, that's about it. Anything more than that, you've probably talked too much on a show because there's so much stuff. And now you, you guys asked at the start, like what's different, what's changed? The prep has changed because at one point when we were first starting out, You know, you'd be lucky if you had various information. Now the question becomes, when do you stop studying? Because there's so much out there. And what do you trust and what do you not trust? And some things on Twitter are great and they're accurate. And some things are false, right? So you have to know, and and there are times where, uh, even at a World Cup, where I've got three notes and they're all different. And they all can't be right. So now you've got to either figure out which one is right or you don't use it at all, right? So if you've never done a World Cup or you've never done the Olympics, the hardest part is figuring out how to do the prep. You know, when do you start? When do you stop? If you have five games in five nights, which could happen, when do you look at the next game? You know, when do you put... Uh, how, much, how much do you plan ahead to game five when you haven't done game one yet? So I think that's the hardest part for anyone that does a World Cup or an Olympic tournament for the very first time. And once you've done it, then it's like rinse and repeat, I would say, right? So that when a World Cup starts, whether it's men's, women's, uh, youth World Cup, senior World Cup, it's, it's the same. And, and I have a sense from having done this knowing when to start the prep and then when when to stop. Because at, at some point, you're putting so many facts and names and numbers in your head that it can get confusing.
0: What, what does that prep look like? Is it is it video? Is it data? Is it anecdotal stories about players? What what does that yeah. prep look like?
1: Well, from a play-by-play standpoint and an analyst standpoint, it's different. Like sure. analysts will will do so much video analysis. Yeah. Uh, like the last World Cup, that i did on the women's side with Alec wagner she does a ton of video stuff she's constantly watching and and looking at other um let's call them coach sources where there's certain programs that you can get that that coaches get and you can see different looks and different replays and and different data right so from a play-by-play standpoint it's more you know facts and figures names and numbers i would say Storylines, uh, but it's it's constant reading. And at a World Cup level, the last several that I've done have been with Fox. And they have a great research department, so there's plenty of stuff for me to go over just from them. But then I'll also do a lot of stuff on my own. And I think the more the more obscure the tournament is the more you have to try to find other ways to to get the information. So, for example, I'm going to be doing an under-17 um, Men's World Cup in November, December. Um, I won't have the same research packet that I had for Qatar or Australia, New Zealand. And you don't know as much about players if they're 17 years of age, right? A lot of them are from now MLS academies, but it's not like they've got eight years as a pro or went to this college or that college. So you won't know as much information about these players. So you'll have to challenge yourself, uh, use that Google button a lot probably to, to check on players. Uh, but that's more challenging if, if you don't know the players. When you get to a men's World Cup or even a women's World Cup, a lot of the players now are very well known because of television.
2: JP, how long does it take you to prep for a...
1: For a game? I, I never put a time on it, Deli, because uh, when one game ends, the prep for the next one sort of starts, right? So like, I just did a game, I filled in on Turner this past weekend, where I did a USA game, women's game versus Columbia. And even though I did prep for that game, part of what I took out of that game, I will use on the weekend when I have San Diego Wave, OL Reign for NWSL. So it's all like in one, one constant motion, right? If I'm watching an NWSL game today, I'm watching it as a fan, because I'm always a fan, but I'm really watching it for prep. I'll watch those two teams. And even if, even if I don't have those two teams next week or the week after, I'm still watching it. That counts as part of my prep.
0: We've talked a lot about kind of your experience in the past, but I I, I wanted to kind of, as we wrap up here, uh, we don't want to take up too much of your time, JP, but uh, ask going forward, what do you see? How do you see the broadcasting, the play-by-play space, the media in general evolving um, in the coming years? Obviously, there's a lot of technology uh, that is kind of changing the way we we do things.
1: Yeah, well, I I think the Apple deal you know changes things obviously because they took away the regional broadcast and whether you agree with that move or, or disagree that move is in place and it's a it's a 10-year deal right nwsl just signed a deal where they're going to be basically um, on four different outlets other rights are going to come up, you know, and, and who gets those, you know, look at what CBS has done with, you know, the Galazzo network and some of the other things that they're doing and getting announcers on site and going to Europe and covering games. And then you've got Turner that I believe it was a eight or a 10 year deal that they signed to do uh, men's and women's games. So then you've got the CONCACAP tournament. So I think it's, it's ever changing to a point where the other day, a few of us had a conversation asking about, who had the rights to next year's whatever event it was, and none of us knew, right? Because it's always changing. And so I think you've got to stay on top of that. I think technology is always changing. Uh, more people are watching games now just on a on a small iPhone than ever before. People are cutting out cable. We didn't think that was going to happen before. And now you hear that, um, sometimes you're not even saving money with it because there's so many different streaming services, right? So uh, it's constantly changing. Uh, the challenge for all of us is to just keep up with it. But I think it's it will change, I would say, in a positive way because the more soccer, specifically soccer, that we can get on TV, on streaming, um, anywhere you could watch it on your iPhone, iPad, whatever, I think the more the better, and it helps us get ready for 2026.
2: Yeah, JP, you said that you weren't actually looking out as far as 26 for, uh, so what what's in store over the next, say, 12 months? What gets you excited? Do you have anything that you're, you'll be doing?
1: Yeah, well, I'm under contract with Fox for another year. So I've got the under 17 men's World Cup right now. Uh, next year, I expect to still be doing NWSL, which I did this past year. And then I haven't had an assignment yet from Fox, but they've got the Euros and they've also got Copa America. And then we'll see what happens after that. So I I take it either one year at a time or one contract to a time. And usually before my contract is up, I renew at some point. Uh, But again, it's too early. And 2026 will come after my contract. So I never never count on things. Um, When I did my first World Cup, I never thought for sure that I would get a second or a third or a 10th. Like, I don't think that way because I don't think anything is a given. I think when you assume and when you think it's a given, you you sometimes get disappointed. So I leave those decisions to others. If, If Australia, New Zealand was my last World Cup, then I'd like to think I went out in style. And if it's not, if I have one more left or two or whatever that number is, uh, you know, we'll see. But I have no control over that.
0: Amazing. Well, you're a very busy man, JP. And we, we appreciate you, you taking the time to, to join us. And uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing you on there in, the, in the coming months and years. So thank you. My,
1: my, my pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thanks, JP.